Our help is in the name of the Lord, may heaven and earth. Okay, welcome to the School of St. Philip Neri. And uh, for those who are uh, new here for the first time, uh, we've decided to spend this year focusing on Philip Neri in particular uh, to offer you something uh, about his life and character, his virtues. We're coming up on the 500th anniversary of his death, and we'll be celebrating that at St. Paul Cathedral on July 21st. Uh, of this summer, and so we thought it would be a good idea to spend a little time with Philip, since he is our patron, uh, to focus on his, his virtues and to spend uh, time each month uh, looking at these with a, in a little bit more detail. A lot of people have come here for years and hear us talking about Philip, but perhaps aren't familiar with who he is when he lived and anything about his character. And so the, the flow of the evening will be to start with a hymn, which Philip often did in his groups, always that involved uh, some sort of singing, and uh, then a, a reading uh, from his life. And Cardinal Newman put together little selections that we, would be read at the Birmingham Oratory at dinner. And so we're just going to read a few of those this evening. Uh, we're starting out the early part of his life. Tonight will be when he first comes to Rome, and the family that he lives with and some of his prayer and pr prayer and ascetical practices uh, will be discussed. And then we're going to look uh, at uh, the theme of cheerfulness and melancholy. The motto of the oratory is Gaudete Semper, rejoice always. And Philip is known as the joyful saint, that he felt that it was much easier to guide those in the spiritual life who had a joyful disposition. And so he always worked very hard uh, to raise up their spirits in one way or another. And so we'll be looking at this as well as the opposite melancholy tonight. And then we'll conclude with the prayer to Philip Neri by uh, Baronius at the end with a final hymn. Okay? So when we all stand and sing together, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And uh, I think I'll let one of you intone uh, it tonight. <laughs> Rather doing it at a base, I don't think we'll... <laughs> Joyful, joyful, we adore Thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before Thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of Ever blessing. Us. 
Patriarch Saint Philip Neri, Apostle of Rome. Philip kept firmly to his intention, though many suggestions were made to divert him from it. He had now resided two years in San Germano, and in 1533, after mature deliberation, he departed for Rome without even letting his father know. Though in all other matters he had never so much as deliberated about anything without his knowledge. The reason for his present conduct was that he might not be hindered in his good design of serving God, detached from worldly things, and especially from riches. He carried nothing with him that he might more freely traffic for the merchandise of heaven, to which he felt the Lord continually calling him. No sooner had he arrived in Rome than an occasion offered itself of serving God as he desired. For the first place to which he bent his steps was the house of a Florentine gentleman named Galeotto Caccia. Caccia seeking his modesty and with and withal considering his, need in, his neediness gave him a little closet to live in and an allowance of corn which Philip gave to the baker and went daily to get bread from him as he wanted it. The saintly youth returned that gentleman's kindness and did not disdain to undertake the care of his two little children, teaching them their letters and also virtuous ways, especially purity and modesty, so that they became, as it were, two angels. As to his room in Katia's house, to say nothing of its extreme smallness, he kept it so poorly that there was nothing in it except a bed and some books and his clothes, linen or woolen, were hung on a rope which went across the room. It was no rare thing for him to make the floor his bed, and the time which was not spent in sleep was given mostly to prayer, in which he had such a facility that he had no need to allure himself thereto by meditation. Indeed, he sometimes spent entire days and nights in it. A way of life so, a way of life so singular as this began by degrees to be spoken of, so that the rumors of it were not only spread all over Rome, but traveled as far as Florence. One of his relations, hearing someone speak of his holy life and the wonders that he had wrought, 
and having known him intimately from a child, said, I do not wonder at this, for I remember very well what sort of a person Philip was while he was yet a boy at Florence. When therefore you return to Rome, bid him pray to God for me. Besides prayer, he studied how to macerate his flesh with every sort of mortification. He slept very little and mostly upon the bare earth and disciplined himself nearly every day with some little chains of iron. He loved poverty as his dearest companion, avoiding conversation and all recreations, even, even blameless ones, and in a word, he studied how to decline everything which could bring comfort or pleasure to his body. His life now became more retired than ever. Indeed, he almost separated himself like a hermit from commerce with men. Above all things, he practiced silence which he prized all his life long more than any other discipline, and kept to it so far as his institute allowed. And thus he attained to the contemplation of divine things. In order to acquire a greater self-recollection, self he adopted the devotion of going every night to the seven churches, and particularly to the cemetery of San Calisto, generally called the Catacombs of Saint Sebastian, and there he prayed for a long while together. He used to carry with him either under his arm or in his hood a single roll on which he lived all day. Neither did he forget to take a book as well. It was in consequence of these practices that a Dominican friar named Father Francesco Cardone of Camerino, master of the novices in the convent of the Minerva, used to propose to him propose him to the novices as an exemplar of penance and often said to them philip neri is a great saint and among other wonderful things he has dwelt for 10 years in the caves of saint sebastian by way of penance and has lived on bread and the roots of herbs for although his regular habitation was in the house of galetto cassia he mostly spent the night in the above-named places. That's it. Thank you. So fitting reading for uh, preparation for Lent. <laughs> so you could all eat a roll a day and maybe an egg or some <laughs> olives. But uh, it gives you sort of an interesting insight into Philip Neri. Uh, as we talked about before, he was one who was driven by the Holy Spirit. His greatest desire was to do the will of God in his life. and. His father had set him up with a, a relative uh, in order to learn a trade, and, uh, and he would take over the responsibility for that when his, his uncle had died. And Philip was there for a very short time and left quickly and spent a, a short while near Monte Cassino uh, along the Mediterranean Sea in a little place called Gaeta, and he would pray there all night long along the sea and then eventually made his, his way to Rome. Uh, but when he goes there, he, do, he lives what I think we would consider the life almost of a vagrant. Uh, although he did serve the sick and the dying in the hospitals and did also educate these little children for his, his host. But his one desire was to lead a life of prayer and penance. And this was all done as a layman. Philip had 
uh, not even thought at this point of pursuing the path of the priesthood. His one desire was holiness. And so he was able to give himself over fully to the mortifications of the flesh as well as to the life of prayer, sometimes spending all night long. It mentioned in the reading that he would, uh, every night for a period of time, make that journey uh, between the seven churches of Rome. You know how on Holy Thursday you'll visit seven churches? Well, that began in Rome with Philip Neri, that they would make a pilgrimage to all the, the main, I think it's all the main basilicas in Rome. But it's quite a journey. It would take you at least a, a half a day or a day to walk it. So I don't know how he did it so, so often. Uh, and then all night long, often in the catacombs of St. Sebastian. And this is before they had electric, electricity and guides. So St. Sebastian Sebastian's one, was one of the few that really hadn't been disturbed at that point. It was really around the time of Philip's life that archaeologists began to explore the catacombs again. And, but St. Sebastian's was one of the few that really hadn't been disturbed at that point. And so I think it was one of the reasons that Philip went there uh, because of his great love of solitude and silence. He could go down there and immerse himself in the deepest silence that one could imagine, no light, no sound, and spend the whole night there in prayer. Uh, so he was, was a great ascetic. Later on, he would describe himself as a desert monk living in the city. And uh, so even though living in Rome, he sought to live the, the discipline that, that they lived, and in some ways even greater, you know, li limiting himself to one meal a day, but it did, didn't sound like very much. A roll, maybe an egg, a few olives. And uh, so he was able to go on uh, a very light diet. Uh, so very simple life, and it allowed him to cultivate a very deep spiritual life. And I think even that is sort of a good example for us. In our own day, we become very busy, and our lives become very complex. And, you know, more often than not, we're responsible for that. You know, that we add things over time, and to the point that we have, we don't have time to breathe, let alone spend a lot of time in prayer. And Philip's focus on life was quite different. Everything was oriented towards prayer, and everything else was just to help him subsist. You know, so he earned a few pennies here and there and by teaching in order to provide enough for the basics, for room and board, but his main task was to pursue the life of prayer. And for all of us in our day, I think it would take a lot of time to gradually reorient our lives to greater simplicity, where we could have even something, uh, a small aspect of what we see here in, in Philip's life. Uh, but I think he stands as a model for us in that regard. And in a time not unlike our own, when the church was facing, you know, a kind of malaise uh, among the faithful in regards to living out uh, the spiritual life, as well as the clergy not living it out very well either. And so Philip had a, a large role in revitalizing the Church of Rome to the point where he's given the title after he's canonized uh, of Apostle of Rome, which is an extraordinary thing that he helped reconvert the, the holy city, as it were, to Christianity. Uh, so a good reading, I think, to start with tonight and as we approach the season of Lent.
And uh, so is the theme that we'll be looking at tonight. It might seem a little strange, cheerfulness <laughs> as we approach Lent, joy. Uh, but actually, it uh, is the perfect theme. Uh, because it is with this spirit that we would want to enter into the discipline of the holy season, and it should also be the fruit of our greater disciplines. I think I've mentioned in a couple of other groups that when you, you read the role of St. Benedict, for example, uh, the, the word joy is mentioned most of all in his chapter on Lent. And uh, so it should give us a little insight into how we should approach the season, but the fruit of penance, the fruit of our disciplines, should be uh, moving away uh, from our sins, uh, a lightening of our consciences, and so a greater joy in the Lord. And so as we come to Easter, we should be able to celebrate with you know, joy and abundance. Uh, as a rule, though, Philip really sought to embrace the spirit of joy in his own life, but also to help those around him uh, be joyful characters too, that anyone who had a grim uh, disposition he would immediately work on and work on very hard, uh, making people carry a dog uh, through the city of Rome with a big pink bow around his neck, you know, and, and uh, or go to a, 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 wine, uh, a wine steward shop and ask for like a little pint of wine and a very large jug and then have to carry it through town as well. Hi there. <laughs> and so Philip was an interesting character in that way. And you can see, I put a picture here, an old painting of Philip, and I forget the Capuchin's name in this painting, but they met along the street and had this playful banter back and forth with each other. You know, have you been uh, tried for heresy yet and things such as that? And the, uh, the Capuchin was carrying with him this large flask of wine and Philip grabs it and pops out the cork and chugs from the, <laughs> from the keg. And uh, so he always had a, a way of sort of lightening the mood of those who, who, who befriended him. And uh, so that's what we're going to look at here this evening, but also to see something of the depth of it. You know, it went beyond uh, a natural characteristic of Philip's personality, that his disposition was that of a joyful young man. And, uh, but we also see how this natural disposition was perfected by the grace of God. And he was able to maintain sort of uh, an uh, equable, equable kind of balance between uh, solemnity in his life and this joyfulness, not going to the extreme in either regard. And so that's what we're going to look at this evening and what it tells us about Philip's spiritual life and how that joy really came to emerge as something so so powerful in his witness. Okay, so we're going to take a look at the, the reading here in the handout that I gave you. The red print is just my little introduction to the text, which turns out to be longer than the text itself. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> a little wordy. Philip is often described as the cheerful and joyful saint, and indeed he was exactly that. Yet this cheerfulness went beyond being simply a natural aspect of Philip's personality. While he seems to be of, have been of a cheerful disposition from his youth, this natural quality was perfected by the grace of God in our holy patron and fostered by a life of deep prayer and virtue. 
Philip understood that melancholy was an impediment to growth in the spiritual life and would use any number of means to lift his spiritual children out of it. What often throws a person into sadness and despondency is an uneasy conscience. Sin weighs a person down spiritually and emotionally. The first and great means of restoring joyfulness in a soul is confession. It is the return to the life of grace that sets the person on the path to joy. Melancholy is not simply an emotional issue, but a spiritual sickness. Sin darkens the heart, and once the light of Christ has returned to the soul, the soul must strive to persevere in the life of virtue. And I feel that that's sort of an interesting point, that we often see you know, the bad moods, or being melancholy, moody, sullen, as you know, just an emotional issue. I'm having a bad day, or I didn't get enough sleep the night before, or something like that. And uh, Philip knew better that there is certainly that aspect of it, but it most more often than not, it's also connected with sin in our lives. That sin is a burden and it weighs us down, and it can magnify our emotional state. And so Philip became very adept at uh, sort of looking at people's spiritual life and being able to diagnose the source of the problem there. And frequently it was uh, a bad conscience, whether it would be lack of purity or uh, attachment to, to worldly things. And so when Philip eventually does become a priest, the thing that he places at the center of his ministry is confession uh, above all things. That this is where he would begin to help heal the hearts of the, the people of Rome and in bringing them back to God through the healing of confession then he was able to bring them uh, more, more deeply into uh, their love of the Eucharist and the reception of the Eucharist which then allowed it to bear even greater fruit for them. Having been prepared in mind and heart having their consciences freed from their sin, they were able then to uh, embrace the grace of the Holy Eucharist and have it bear tremendous fruit for them. And so it's often said that Philip's disciples you know, rivaled all of these religious in their obedience, and it was given freely out of love for Philip, but it was exact and immediate. And he also, through his joyful character, drew a lot of people to the, the religious life. Uh, so many, in fact, that uh, he was called the bell, that uh, he would sound the call uh, for people to embrace the religious life, especially to the Dominicans and to the Jesuits, uh, a lot who were going off uh, to the missions and were going to face martyrdom. And Philip would be the one who would strengthen them uh, for the purpose at hand. And so uh, we'll look a little bit more, more at this when we, we go through the text. But uh, Philip had uh, been formed greatly by some of the Eastern uh, writers, Eastern Christian writers, and we had mentioned this in a previous group. In fact, uh, at his early groups at the oratory, uh, they would read Cassian and John Climacus. <laughs> and so I didn't just make that up, and it's just not my preference. It's uh, 
something that Philip did, and I think because he saw them as such great teachers of the spiritual life. Uh, but one of the insights that they had about the spiritual life is that repentance does bring one to joy. In fact, the, the word that they use uh, for, for this is penthos, which means joyful sorrow or sorrowful joy. That, which I think sorrowful joy seems to make more sense to me because one mourns over one's sin and repents of it and is drawn back to God through confession and then comes to experience the joy of communion with him. And so those, the two are always seen as connected together, that one doesn't come to this supernatural kind of joy without first mourning one's sins. And, uh, you know, it seems like a foreign concept, I think, in our own day, that uh, we think somehow that we will be happier if we don't focus on our, our sinfulness. Uh, that to do so is morbid or it'll drag us down. And what we learn from Philip is just the opposite, that to understand ourselves and our own sinfulness, uh, to even weep over those sins, ultimately draws us back into the arms of God. And so it lifts us up to the highest kind of joy. Christ himself said, he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is what Philip saw very clearly about the spiritual life. When we humble ourselves before God, acknowledge our sins, then he lifts us up uh, to that intimacy with him. Uh, I mentioned, I don't know if any of you follow, happen to follow Facebook here, <laughs> but uh, I posted uh, a l little uh, reflection by, it's anonymous, we don't know who the author is, but it must be monastic. And I entitled it The Ascetic Heart. It didn't quite have uh, a title to it, but it seemed a perfect preparation for, for Lent. And it's about, how long is it, 10 or 15 pages? So if you have the opportunity, there are some of these available outside of the chapel. It would be a good preparation for the coming week. And there's one little section here that, that captures this, this notion of sorrow leading to joy. And it's only a couple paragraphs long, so I just want to share it with you. It's very beautiful. It's uh, an elder speaking to uh, a young man or a father to his son. It's not very clear here which it is. Uh, he begins by saying, the boy approached his father gently. Old man, why do you sorrow? The old man softened his tears. Beloved, my sorrow is my joy. Where there is no weeping, there is no rejoicing. And he who has not sorrowed has never known delight. I sorrow for the darkness that I see within, for the depth of the divide I have cast between my mind and my heart. I sorrow for I have become the source of sorrow. And if I do not weep, I shall never be healed. What God has blessed, I have squandered. And therefore all the mountains weep. Shall I yet rejoice? See me, an aged man of squandered days, a vessel of life confined to death, yet merry at peace, rejoicing. No, beloved, let us weep, let us know sorrow, for then we know ourselves, then we see. No more in ignorance, but in truth let us walk, acknowledging our woe, weeping with the earth, when its sorrow is our sorrow, then the weight shall crush my bones, 
and crushed I shall be reborn. Sorrow is the door, dear boy, the door of joy, pure and true. With every tear we shed, we rejoice more fully, exist more wholly, love more purely. And with this the old man's words ceased, his mouth was still, and as the tears brimmed within his eyes, his joy radiated as the sun. It's very poetic, but beautiful. And I think it captures very well what we see in Philip and an aspect I think that is often missed about his character, that he's often seen as the practical joker and one who is willing to humiliate himself in front of just about anyone and humiliate everybody else in front of <laughs> others too in order to humble them. But there was a real depth to his spirituality uh, that is all the more beautiful, I think because it was so hidden. But it was a depth that was rooted in the teachings of, of the fathers. And I think it's beautifully expressed in this little selection from the ascetic heart, uh, but also in Philip's life in general. Okay. Any thoughts about that before we move on to the rest of the introduction? Exactly. Right. So where people, he was still human and not like this ascetic person. Right. Yeah, and it's taken many years, I think, to see that here at the oratory, just how beautiful Philip's spirituality is for that reason. Hidden, and yet there's an extraordinary depth to it. And, you know, part of the reason that it's hidden is that Philip destroyed all of his writings twice throughout the course of his life. And so we have no direct writing. What we have is the example, the life of Philip himself, and then uh, what he left us, which is the, the oratory. And uh, the longer you live within the oratory, the more you begin to see the beauty of Philip Neri, how far you are from his perfection. But uh, you see the, the wisdom that the man did have. And... I think in a group, was it Cassian's group this week, or maybe it was a, a week ago, we talked about one of Philip's uh, idols, was Savonarola, who preached, I think he was a Dominican, who was this fiery preacher in Florence, and one who solved the same problems that Philip did, but uh, especially in the corruption of the clergy, including the, the, the bishops, and would rail against them, and, and Philip was very moved by this when he witnessed it as a young man. But uh, Savonarola eventually went too far and ended up being burned at the stake. And it was said that Philip kept one picture in his room, and it was a picture of Savonarola. And it was either, you know, to, you know, fire within him this desire for God or a reminder perhaps, that Philip took the opposite route that Savonarola took, that he sought to gain people through sweetness and through joy rather than through the fierceness of his preaching. And part of that is what we see in tonight's little, little reading, 
that he saw melancholy as the real impediment there, that a joyful heart is more easily able to, to run towards, towards God, that we are weighed down if we are f- filled with sadness. Any other thoughts before we move on? Okay. Essential in this struggle to maintain cheerfulness is interior mortification. If we do not deny our will and order our appetites, our heart becomes a nursery of temptations and our lives and relationships become unsettled. And so Philip again was very attentive to what was going on uh, internally, that he was an ascetic in terms of his uh, uh, bodily exercises. He would fast greatly, he would keep vigils, praying throughout the night, but more important for him was the interior mortification of the will, of the reason, and taking every opportunity uh, to set that aside and live in a spirit of obedience, and that he knew that this brought a person a kind of interior freedom. If you perfect the heart and you're able to overcome all self-will and willfulness, then you're going to be a much more joyful person. You aren't going to be driven to anger and frustration every time somebody asks you to do something or every time somebody slights you with you know, a harsh word or shoots you a sharp glance. You know, Philip was able to bear those things and to bear them joyfully without anyone even noticing. And uh, more often than not, we're moved to anger at the smallest kind of thing. So this interior mortification was essential to maintaining that joyful spirit as well. Additionally, Philip identified the multiplication of worldly goods as contributing to melancholy. An abundance of goods, property, or money leads to an abundance of worries about how to manage it, protect it, or increase the amount of it. Overattention to worldly security can lead to the neglect of the pursuit of spiritual riches. This is probably one of our greater difficulties here in the West, that we have such an abundance of material goods and we're taught very early on to seek them and to seek them out, that our whole life begins to revolve around that, even our education. You know, we'll pursue that with a mind to you know, getting a good job so that we can make enough money to support ourselves, a family, to have the things that we want, and then also to have a kind of, of security for our later years. And so, before you know it, our whole life revolves around these things and, and maintaining them. And we see in Philip's life a kind of simplicity that, you know, he lived on next to nothing and had next to nothing, and yet in that he found great freedom. Now, certainly he was a single man, a layman, and so he could live that in perhaps a, a far more extreme way than a, a family uh, could. But again, I think he stands for us as, as a great model in that regard about what we emphasize and what we pursue. That very few of us have probably tasted the freedom that Philip knew because most of us are caught up in that reality in one way or another in pursuing these worldly goods. And that includes priests as well. I mean, you can get into this 
sense of trying to maintain security, of not just having enough for the day, but really trying to raise enough in order to support yourself, you know, through a couple of lifetimes. <laughs> and it can really diminish the life of the church in a radical way because it shifts, again, the focus off of what is most important, the life of prayer, the pursuit of virtue, the sacramental life. It can even pull a priest away from performing the very duties that he's meant to perform as a priest because the focus now has shifted towards perhaps an enormous amount of fundraising or he becomes an administrator and so feels you know, unable any longer to do the things that he would even prefer to do and that he was trained and ordained to do. In the struggle with melancholy, we must not take ourselves too seriously. To teach this, Philip would unexpectedly make someone sing a song or ask someone to go for a little run. These simple actions would often be enough to break melancholy's hold and lighten the mood. I don't know if I would have liked Philip very much. <laughs> when you're so, so self-conscious, you know, a character like Philip probably was hard to deal with it at times, you know. And poor, there were some who had a hard time with it. And Bronius, who was probably one of the closest, closest to him and had been with him all those years, was a man of serious study and intellect and you know, wrote the first sort of like modern history of the Catholic Church. And I think he had multiple degrees. Uh, I think he was a lawyer. And I don't know if it was the other one was philosophy or maybe it was civil law. But so he's a brilliant man. And so coming and living with Philip, whose character was so different and so lighthearted, he worked on Baronius a lot and sought to, to humiliate him quite often. And he was uh, made to be cook. And for so long, he was cook that it, you could still see written in the kitchen of the Roman oratory, Baronius perpetual cook. <laughs> so. Philip showed no mercy when it came to things like melancholy. Now this is an important thought here to conclude the introduction. Be that as it may, Philip knew that such tactics had their limits. There is a difference between not taking oneself too seriously and falling into the extreme of not taking anything serious at all, of falling into buffoonery. As with any virtue, cheerfulness or joy must be shaped and directed by the grace of God lest we destroy what little spirituality we have through dissipation. So Philip knew that we could go too far. You know, if we're constantly joking about things and uh, not taking anything serious about our, our life, you know, being too lighthearted, then we can become dissipated and lose our, our way, you know, not really giving ourselves over uh, to a deep prayerfulness or the study of the fathers and or to our, our ministry. So there was a, a definite limit to it. And again, I think this is something that's often absent in people's minds about Philip Neary. They think of him as being this joyful, uh, practical joker. But more often than not, that was a means of humbling people who were sort of held captive by pride than it was falling into buffoonery or humbling himself because 
he did gain this reputation very early, even as a layman, of being a saint. And then there were miracles even associated with you know, Philip's life too. And so there were ways that he had to make himself look less in the eyes of others, reading comic books or having them read when you know, a cardinal would come to visit or something <laughs> like that, or, or wearing these you know, outrageous garments. So I think he had these big white, <laughs> white or red shoes, I think white shoes that he would wear around under his black cassock. So it would be like one of us wearing tennis shoes, you know, with our <laughs> cassock. But there was always a reason for it. So uh, let's go on to the text uh, from Philip's life and see how it is described here. Our holy master, who was never seen to be melancholy or troubled, who was never too cheerful but always maintained an equable gaiety, could not endure that we should be melancholy but would always have us cheerful, for he says that melancholy is prejudicial to spirituality. We should be more careful not to yield to a melancholy disposition, as the Holy Master had a certain especial liking for cheerful people, and assures us that the cheerful are more easily guided in the spiritual life than the melancholy. The Holy Father was accustomed to say, charity and gladness, or charity and humility, and sometimes even availed himself of playfulness to drive away melancholy, giving a person a slight box on the ear, saying, I did not beat you, but the devil. <laughs> that, I, that I could use. That I could. <laughs> when, when taking leave of a Capuchin, whose spirit he had tried by mortification, Seeing that he had preserved his cheerfulness, he said to him, My son, per persevere in this cheerfulness, for this is the true way to make, progression, to make progression in saintly virtue. To come to the remedies against melancholy, we know that the first is to have a good conscience, wherefore the saint prescribed the powerful means of a general confession. And after having freed the penitent from melancholy, charged him to go and sin no more, Hence, the good brother, Batista Guerra, often reminded the novices of St. Philip that they should maintain cheerfulness and preserve themselves from sin. So again, preserving from sin, you know, it's, it's not only relieving our conscience through going to confession, but embracing the grace that we receive through the sacrament to sin no more. And this is how we maintain the the joyful spirit, when we find ourselves falling again and again because we really aren't uh, uh, embracing the grace of the sacrament or, or we don't have a firm purpose of amendment, uh, it can become a very depressing uh, kind of thing when we find ourselves falling over and over into the same sins again. And we can find ourselves even some, simply coming to confession for the emotional release but never really coming to experience or taste the joy that Philip is talking about because we lack that investment of self in the pursuit of virtue. And so we hear, even in that uh, little reading that we did uh, that Karina read for us about teaching the little boys about the virtue of modesty. You know, from a very early age, uh, fostering the virtues in them that would protect them, you know, from the effects of the world around them. That would drag them down. Excuse me. 
It's all your perfume, I'm sorry. <laughs> room, room full of women. My nose is running. <laughs> What's that? Oh, that's all right. I know we're recording. <laughs> I'll edit that part out. Yeah, I've been worse, much worse than that. So what was I saying? Oh, about the little boys. You know, that fostering that the chase spirit that allows them not to be weighed down and to be able to love with a greater freedom. And we see this lost in our culture, and no doubt it's the, you know, the source of great sorrow and depression. And certainly as a priest, I can tell you that's true, that it's reached like addictive levels in terms of what uh, people expose themselves to, both men and women. And it can be weigh so heavy upon them that it can lead to a kind of depression that there seems to be no hope and no freedom from it. And so, you know, working from an early age to foster this in the young, you know, the love of purity, uh, the, you know, fostering a kind of modesty, trying to protect the virtue of others is such an important thing because once it's lost, it's very hard to, to regain because the memory, the, the imagination holds so much that we can't immediately free ourselves from it. You know, once the imagination has been tainted, or once the memory is filled with certain things, then the purification that has to take place is one that is deep and intensive and can take years of prayer, asceticism, and you know, fasting, things such as that, that help to reorder the, the bodily appetites. And so Philip was known to have you know, to protect it with a radical kind of intensity that might even be sort of a shock to our sensibilities today. You know, that he you know, didn't want even, you know, the guys of the oratory touching each other, even in the most innocent way, that, you know, he knew how easily the, the passions could be stirred. And so maintaining sort of a, a watchfulness of one's uh, eyes, you know, that we would be you know, careful of what we would expose ourselves to. Philip would, you know, never do such a thing. And even in the confessional, you know, there was a woman who went to confession to him for 30 years, 30 or 40 years, I think. And, you know, during the proceedings for his canonization, part of the story was that never once did he look at her in the confessional. I know that seems sort of jarring to us because, you know, I think our culture has shown told us all, oh, okay, you can't be, there's something neurotic about that. And maybe, you know, maybe we could look at that with a critical eye, certainly, and say to ourselves, well, you know, maybe there was a, a harshness there that was partly cultural in the way that w women were perceived at the time that may have affected Philip. But there was also a kind of wisdom in that, too, that... You know, he didn't take things lightly, you know, in regards to human emotion and the rise of affections within the heart. And I think we are much freer with that in our day, but sometimes we find ourselves uh, wrapped up in such a way that it can be, you know, very hard that, you know, in terms of uh, not becoming dissipated or, or not having our our th thoughts in any ways solid. And uh, so, 
Philip might seem extreme in this way, but in that extreme, I think he also becomes a powerful witness for us to say this, this is something to be protected and guarded. And so even though the world around you is saying, you know, don't be prudish, you know, and you know, freely expose yourself to anything on television, any kind of humor, any I image, same thing with the movies, uh, let alone the violence in the movies, you know, Philip would have no, no part of that. And again, I think this is part of the influence of the Desert Fathers upon, upon, upon him. The idea of taking every thought captive of not exposing the mind and the heart to things that could affect it, affect them aversely. And you know, this is something that we need to regain for ourselves. This is part of the resource mont, you know, going back to the sources that teach us really something about human psychology as well as spirituality that we've lost. The impact of these external uh, stimuli and we encounter it like no other generation before before us. And at some point it's going to take over. Uh, and recently I read that you know, those who seek to live this life of purity and chastity in our day are going to be the martyrs of the new age. That because of the discipline that's necessary to live it in such a, a culture, they, they are going to have to be ever so strict with themselves, you know, in, in regards to the spiritual disciplines that allow them to maintain it. Or those who have lost it, you know, through negligence will have to then, uh, through spiritual discipline and repentance, you know, rededicate themselves to the pursuit of it with, with great vigor. That will be akin to martyrdom, a, a true dying to self and sin. And so it will mean cutting ourselves off from certain things that other people participate in without even thinking about. You know, sort of following Jesus' line of thought, if your hand causes you sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you sin, pluck it out. That living the Christian life and living a life of chastity and purity is going to re re mean that we cut certain things out of our life where we lose the enjoyment of that, you know, or the ability to, you know, to make use of it freely for the sake of the virtue itself. And so at some point we might make a decision, I'm not going to watch television, or I'm not going to go to the movies, because I know, even if it's PG-13, I'm going to encounter an excessive amount of sensuality and violence. And so I just know I know myself and I know that I can't expose myself to this. And it takes courage and a strong will to be able to do that. To say no, I'm just not going to do it. But I, I think we really have to be willing to make that choice. And this is where I think Philip can be a, a, a strong guide for us. Any thoughts about that before I move on? Come on, my throat's getting a little dry here. Along with the culture was also the, um, the understanding of what is, uh, is defined as sinfulness is also weakened. Mm -hmm. We've lowered the bar. We've lowered the bar more and more. And we keep lowering it as we get right. desensitized. Yeah. It's shocking to think, you know, what my grandparents would have thought about. Well, they, they watched Lawrence Welk, you know, every time we went over on the weekends. But uh, mm -hmm. to think about what they would 
even about like commercials on television, I don't know what they would have, I think it would have been so jarring to their sensibilities that they wouldn't have been able to, to handle it. But we've been gradually desensitized to it over time. That it takes something like, I don't know, this is it Fifty Shades of Grey? Like mm -hmm. even the secular culture seems to be coming out and saying, okay, there's something wrong with this. But it took this extreme to make them stop and think a little bit. Whereas they're the purveyors of it in every other, in, in every other way. But it takes something, you know, abusive or I'm not quite sure what it's about. I've just what I've gleaned from. There's still a lot. I was recently on the news. They were interviewing people, and even though the whole content, there are still people who come out and say, "Oh, it's okay uh, between adults. It was consensual." It's, I mean, they're still maintaining that facade that it's okay. Right. It's like, no. But, right. and, that, and then you go to the workplace and then you have to deal with a lot of the overall people's attitudes that, well, yeah, it's okay. Or, you know, why is that an issue? You, sh you should have freedom to, you know, right. it, it's really Well, hard. I think it's part of the arrogance of our age. And it's all, you know, we've talked in the past about the therapeutic man and therapeutic woman, that psychologically we've become very astute in the last hundred years, that we've come to see and understand things about the human person, the unconscious, unconscious that we you know, hadn't articulated in, in the past. There have been insights over these last hundred years especially. And yet at the same time, we find a diminishing uh, line in regards to the spiritual life and when the, the emotional life is cut off from the spiritual then it's cut off from its real life and the, the emptiness that can come is very great and so you have a rise of those needing psychological care but it never really being able to bring the depth of the healing that they need because it's only addressing one aspect of who they are as, as human beings. Whereas we find in many of these Desert Fathers this kind of depth psychology that's far greater than what we have now, but integrates the two. They knew the human person, how the mind and the heart work so well that there was deep spiritual healing to be found. And still today, you, know, you find people going to some place like Mount Athos and engaging the, so the modern elders there and who you know, meeting a person for the first time can sort of diagnose what's going on within the depths of their hearts and tell them, you know, this is what you need to do spiritually to draw yourself out of it. How and do they know that when they do not experience it? How do they not expose themselves to it? Because they know that they have a purity of heart that they have gained by the grace of God and through living the life of deep prayer and asceticism that it enables them to know themselves with a great clarity as well as their own sin. That having separated themselves in a radical way, one might expect, well, how would they really understand something like that? Believe me, they know it probably better than we do, even though we've exposed ourselves to all this trash in the culture. They, they know what goes on in the depths of the human heart. And so when they engage people, they're able to see, you know, by the way that they talk, the way that they speak about their life, their relationship with God, what is really 
going on there. You know, I think most a lot of the things that we speak of of addiction are really passions. Passions are deeply rooted and habitual uh, states of sinfulness, where we give ourselves over to a particular appetite. It becomes disordered to the extent that it really takes hold of our lives, that we almost lose the freedom of our, our will in that regard. And there are so many things today that people are going to, you know, this such and such anonymous or to do group work in order to overcome it, not to diminish the value of those things, but they're really not dealing with the, the deeper issues at hand. You know, they, they may gain a modest control over those things, but it's always going to be tenuous, and there's not going to be the deep freedom and joy that we see in somebody like Philip or a holy soul that has really purified the mind and the heart. Could it also be that even without experiencing um, things to an extreme level, as generally the culture does today, that someone who has withdrawn from the world, that nonetheless in that silence they're still experiencing in their own mind and heart the more subtle temptations. So they may not have viewed the internet, they may not have seen right. this or read this, but nonetheless, just from experiencing very mm -hmm. subtly and quietly the movements of their own heart and right. where it could be tempted, yeah. they understand things uh, even that are... Yeah, their consciences become highly sensitized and well-formed, you know, that they, they see the more, as you said, subtle workings of the heart and how temptations can work upon a person. Uh, it just reminded me of what I read when they said um, St. Padre Pio could read people's consciences. Like mm -hmm. they would come to confession and say, like, no, you're not telling me. So, but mm -hmm. by the grace of God, you know, he could tell what was going mm -hmm. on. So maybe same thing, these monks being... Yeah. And that was true of Philip Neary as well. And the, he knew people since, you know, before they came to confession, and particular ones that they were having a hard time confessing and part of that is certainly by the grace of God you know that they are given an understanding there that it's elevated becomes supernatural by the grace of God and part of it I think is experience that Philip like Padre Pio would often spend whole days within the confessional 50 confessions before saying mass in the morning and so when you hear that many confessions you're going to get pretty good at it <laughs> You know, in terms of discerning what's going on there. Let me move on here. Where, where did we leave off? Um, Top of the page? Yeah. Another important remedy against melancholy will be to make ourselves familiar with the practice of interior mortification because St. Philip says that when anyone knows how to break his own will and deny his soul its own desires, he has a good degree of virtue and the, the not doing so is to bear about with us a nursery of temptations so that such persons will be easily angry, easily break up a friendship, and will rarely be cheerful but generally melancholy and troubled at what befalls them. I love the, the phrase nursery of temptations because it's, you know, the, it's in, within our hearts that we will nurse certain things into a, you know, full growth 
And so if we have this little tendency towards a particular sin, uh, say it's towards anger, you know, towards somebody, you know, we'll find ourselves, you know, thinking about it and this person and then talk, and then it becomes talking about and talking about with others and then it becomes full-blown that uh, where it becomes contempt for the other. And at that point, it's taken root pretty deeply. And for Philip, you know, you always want to rip these things out, roots and all rate, rate from the beginning, because once they've taken root, they're very, very difficult to remove. And so there is a sense where we have to do violence to ourselves, you know, not in, in the sense that we hurt ourselves physically, but we do violence to ourselves in the sense that we don't allow ourselves to have those thoughts. We stomp ourselves in that moment and fight the thought and set it aside and redirect ourselves to something else, most, most importantly, God, you know, that we would turn in prayer to him in the face of those thoughts. Yeah, um, I have a question. Is, he, is Philip differentiating melancholy? Like there's a lot of discussion as far as sin and all that. Is he making a differentiation of melancholy in that respect, as opposed to people being melancholy, like in the face of grief and depression, or um, you know, people having difficulties in their lives and they're overwhelmed? And so, is he making a differentiation in that? Yeah, I think for Philip, it's tied more to our fallen state and our sinfulness that leads to a kind of despondency. Solen or general sullenness. You know, depression, clinical depression would be a different thing. You know, sometimes people, you know, struggle, as we know now, you know, from certain chemical imbalances and, you know, that they experience this deep kind of depression. But, you know, by and large, I think what we, what we use the word for, you know, in the, you know, in our everyday use of the word depression even is probably melancholy, as Philip would describe it, a kind of sadness, you know, uh, sullenness that comes over us because we aren't focused upon the one who is our joy, and we're not living a holy life. Our sins are weighing us down, even if it's our, our negligence of being attentive to loving God as he should be loved. Well, no, I don't think at that time certainly it wouldn't have been separate. Now, I think we don't even separate it now, or shouldn't, because there's not, it's not like we segment off our spiritual life from the psychological and emotional. The two are intimately tied together. And so when you know, our spiritual state becomes disordered, it is going to lead to an emotional depression. And this is what he's talking about, you know, with like the attachment to worldly goods, you know, that that will lead to a depression because you're constantly filled with this anxiety in order to maintain it. Or you have to you know, have this job where you drive yourself relentlessly, have no rest, can't pursue your spiritual life. And so you sink further and further down into an emotional 
depression and what would even be seen as clinical depression, but the root of that is really our attachment to, to worldly goods. It's our, our sinfulness. Right. Any number of things. I find it particularly challenging, and I don't know if anyone else has this, to, to discern um, the difference between kind of feeling a temptation and actually giving over to the sin. And, you know, he talks about, like, the nursery of temptations. You know, and I'm angry. I'm like, Arr, you know, and I'm feeling it. But it's hard to discern whether I've given mm -hmm. over to that anger or that's just, the, you know, the temptation of anger. And I was wondering, you know, is that something that can be intellectually taught? Or is that something that we have to wait for God to give us the grace? Well, intellectually we can understand it. And the fathers often did break it down. You know, the anger is an emotion. And in that element, there's nothing sinful about it. And often is a, a reflection, say, of an injustice that we witness on some level. And so we can fill the stir of anger. And they even describe one of the powers of the soul as being the insensitive power. We become incensed. But that power, rightly directed, is to be directed our, at our sin, not at another person. And so you know, we can very easily make that shift in directing our, what should be directed at pursuing the life of virtue and overcoming our sin, you know, towards other people when we see sin in them or when we see some, you know, failing in them. You know, if, if we haven't formed our minds and our hearts, if we lack purity of heart, we're going to even begin looking for things in others. And usually... You know, they'll say that anger can be stirred, for example, anger, uh, but then there will be a provocation is usually when the sin begins to take place. And, and even then, it's not, not really sin, but we're being provoked to pursue it further, to, to nurse it. And then when we begin to, to nurse it, either by holding on to it even momentarily, or you know, th you know, throughout the you know, somebody says something harsh to us, and then you know, we'll be stewing about it. And instead of setting it aside, we'll carry it and nurse it throughout the day until it becomes this full-blown rage. We were provoked pretty quickly. You know, the the demons are relentless in that in that way. That somebody does something to us, they're right there to stir us. You know, to provoke us into greater anger, to plant the seed, a thought, you know, that jerk, you know, and then the next thing, you know, we've followed it along. Okay. So what's more important than understanding it intellectually? No, what's more important than understanding it intellectually, though, is living the spiritual life, seeking the, the purity of heart. So the ascetic life, the life of prayer, where we develop this deep self-knowledge, as well as knowledge of God, you know, where we are taking every thought captive, we're engaging in that unceasing prayer, you know, th that is the more important thing than to understand it intellectually, because you could understand it intellectually, you know, perfectly. You could understand each stage, you know, from provocation to communion with it, and but still not really be fighting it. I see. Yes. And, and, and if it's something that's covered 
and it's when he pre preaches Christ crucified. And then also when he preaches it after being beat up and stoned and shipwrecked and lashed is when it takes on a real power. You know, that a person preaching Christ crucified who has a couple teeth knocked out, <laughs> his, word, his words are going to have more power than a person who lives in a fancy house and, you know, people are, people are going to see the weight in that, that the, the love of God in that person, but also what that, that love means, that God was willing to do this, take our flesh upon himself. This is the depth of the love, all the sorrow, all the suffering we experience, the isolation, the loneliness, Christ takes upon himself on the cross. And it's in this that we find our great joy because we're, we're not alone in it. Yeah. And it takes a person a while of meditating upon that to be able to see it. It's not just a morbid curiosity that we have, in other words, you know, a focusing on the suffering alone. It's the suffering of a God who loves us and pours himself out for us, who's not just all-powerful, but all-suffering, all-self-emptying, you know, who does something that's almost incomprehensible to us, makes himself lower than the angels, becomes a slave, a servant, obedient. Then you can see that lived in the Passionist nuns, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the Passionist nuns, contemplative nuns, who hold, their whole life is focused on the passion, and they're some of the most joyful nuns you will meet. Yeah. The very first time I went to visit them, um, I remember one of the sisters saying to me, you might hear us, if you're in the chapel, you might hear us during recreation. And I was like, Right, I'm going to hear you. And I was. I was in the chapel completely silent, and then you would just hear this outburst of laughter from them during our show. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, and it's almost a little unnerving. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's, I mean, they're, I mean, they're right here in Pittsburgh. You can, you can visit yeah. them, and that's, you know, yeah. their whole life is centered around that. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that their life doesn't have suffering within it, but I think by immersing themselves you know, in that self-emptying love of Christ by having their focus beyond the passion of Christ. They come to see the beauty of it more and more. And well, that's, to that's, believe that one is loved is a source of joy, whether it's the joy, a child's joy knowing that his parents love him, a bride's joy knowing, or a husband's knowing that their spouse loves them. It's always the deepest, one of the deepest sources of joy right. to know that one is loved. And with God, that joy is going to be pretty great. Okay, let's move on here. We're coming to the end here. So where, where are we at this point? Eagerness and accumulating money also causes melancholy, as we gather from what befell a disciple of the saint, who had thus eagerly acquired money, to whom the Holy Master said, My son, before you had this property, you had the face of an angel and it gave me pleasure to look at you. But now you've changed your countenance, you've lost your wanted cheerfulness, and are melancholy, so look to yourself. The docile disciple blushed, and profiting by the ad admonition, he afterwards only studied how to enrich himself in another life. When assailed by melancholy, let us employ our tongues in singing. We have many examples of the holy masses having caused the melancholy 
um, I'm sorry, the Holy Master having caused the melancholy to sing even with others, as we especially learn from the case of the noble Roman who was oppressed with melancholy and whom St. Philip caused to sing a little with uh, Father Antonio Galonio in order to divert him. At another time, the Holy Father invited Father Francesco Bernardo, who was sad, to run with him. And at this invitation, his melancholy left him. That's right, yeah. Just run around in a circle. Though cheerfulness was so pleasing to the Holy Master, yet he was never pleased with this dissipation, for he said that we must carefully guard against becoming dissipated, of giving into what he called a buffoonery spirit, since buffoonery unfits a person for receiving greater spirituality from God and roots up what little he has already acquired. And so, you know, he was, again, adept at, at doing this. You know, he could bring people out of that sadness, but also, at the same time, then lead them into that deeper kind of spirituality. You know, because what, what purpose would it serve just to entertain? You know, that's not what we're called to. We're called to lead others to the joy of, of Christ. And if we simply become the buffooning clown, you know, okay, you make people laugh, you tell jokes and things like that, but are you nourishing them upon the thing that's going to bring them the, the abiding joy in their life and that their heart seeks? And Philip, again, is the, the best example, model for us in this, I think. Sometimes, you know, in a family setting, it's hard to bring up or know how to talk about, you know, the spiritual life. If you guess your house going to be received, especially in a maybe a little bit of a larger family setting. Um, it's nice to like break some tension with some lighthearted, you know, and and then that's the perfect time, you know, to praise God or whatever and then just not always sure the words to say. I think it's more the li- living in the in the joyfulness that is what's transformative. In the same way that, you know, a person who's living in the peace of Christ is going to be for their whole family a source of peace. They might not have to say anything to them, but how they handle all those situations. Say if there is melancholy in the family, somebody's sad, you know, that joyfulness or how they handle that can help draw a person out of it without being confrontational or preachy or things like that. We just don't trust that. I think, again, maybe because we don't experience it enough in our own life, or at least not long long enough. When you live in it like Philip did, then he could trust himself that that was going to be something that produced fruit in people's lives. He didn't have to force it. And I think we lose, we lose trust in it when we, when we see, you know, a spirit sort of take over within a family or a community, and so we'll try to muscle the situation, and invariably it makes the situation worse. This is a great photo, by the way. Isn't it? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> We're impatient and yeah. we feel that theological debate will 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of what we're called to, and it, it is a hard thing, you know, not to react to the anger, the sadness, or the frustration of another, and to be able, in a Christ-like fashion, to be able to receive that and give it back, not with more anger, frustration, and anger, but to receive it in such a way that it is transformed so that what we give back is transformative for the other person. And that is the hard thing. You know, we, we'll get angry ourselves and then give it back to the person with, you know, double barrel, you know, so that they're more angry after talking to us <laughs> than before. Whereas if we have that peace of mind, you know, we, we can see that they're, they're hurting and maybe they're even directing that anger at us. They're projecting it out on us. And if we're able to receive that and contain it and, you know, it, it relieves it. And that's what Christ does on the cross. All the anger, all the hatred, all the sin of the world is, com comes to rest upon him. And he doesn't give it back with wrath, but receives it and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so that's what we're called to do in our day-to-day -day life as well. You know, so our taking up our cross daily doesn't mean necessarily these extraordinary things. It could be a situation like that where we bear, you know, with the angry mood of someone where they might even be lashing out at us and it doesn't mean we become doormats but we're able to receive that you know with a kind of presence of mind and peace of heart that then we can help them through it bring you know be a source of healing in that regard father drew's just been beaten up on me for years <laughs> keep taking it and taking <laughs> What's that? That's right. Yeah. Well, it's been funny to see how things have developed over the years. You know, the, Philip, the other part of Philip's wisdom was the common life and stability. You stay in one house for life and you have to live with this group of guys <laughs> forever. <laughs> and you know, that's where you're mortified and the rough edges are knocked off. But that can take decades for that to happen. You know, where you know each other pretty well and then you can begin to laugh at things and you can begin to receive those things without having to counter or defend, defend yourself. But you can go through periods where you hate each other's guts. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh boy, you know, yeah, by the way, what is this? Like a little bit too professional. <laughs> I think about it in my room. <laughs> I have one of those dummies, you know, that you... Is that your practice of clear Well, see, we labored. We labored as a community because we had no elders. You know, the oratory went through quick transitions. We're a young community. And so we didn't have with the wisdom of the elders, as it were. You know, guys who had gone through the common life and had experienced it so that they could sort of level things out when they got heated. We never had that. So, <laughs> for like 30 years. <laughs> and so finally it started to calm, calm down a little bit.
except then you have this new influx of all these young guys, you know, these upstarts, and <laughs> they start bossing you around like you're... <laughs> well, you don't have a spanking hole. Huh? You don't have a nobody, hole. nobody pays attention to it. <laughs> gray, gray hair doesn't mean anything around here. <laughs> so, Philip's great, though, isn't he? I mean, the more that you get to know him, you see that it's a beautiful life and a beautiful spirituality. Okay. It's okay. Soon they'll be novices, and then you'll be in charge of them. <laughs> 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 what do you do? <laughs> I know. I just read about this monk from Mount Athos called Difficult Father Daniel, and it was it was amazing. But <laughs> it was difficult, <laughs> especially to the novices. So. Got me juiced up the for next the next time. Thomas asks for a vacation. You didn't even take the seat. All the little monks goes up asking. He got permission from the abbot to go on a vacation. So he goes to difficult Father Nathaniel. Oh, yeah, Nathaniel. Yeah, Nathaniel to ask for the money because Father Nathaniel's the treasurer. He's like, he shows him the note. He got permission. Father Nathaniel drops on the floor, starts kicking his feet. Like, he's like, thief, thief, to go on vacation. And just like starts screaming in the middle of the town, and the poor priest just like runs back into the monastery. <laughs> See, I'm learning. <laughs> it's wonderful. All my years as novice master, I've added a few things to my <laughs> formation technique. Okay. Well, why don't we close, uh, as always, here tonight uh, with our prayer to St. Philip. This was written by uh, Baronius, He's one of his closest friends. Why don't we stand for this, and then we'll sing our closing <coughs> hymn. And there's a painting of Philip here on my right. And together let us pray. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world hinders no more this kindly eyes of thine. From looking clearly into all things, look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted, with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid, to thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender, Undertake the cause of our salvation. Protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader. Rule thy army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and place as thou art on high. Keep us off all the rocks of evil desires. And with thee, for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the port of eternal Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Philip, pray for us. You can start. No, you can I don't know what note to start okay. it on. I always start it too low. Praising, we worship you today and sing the love of me.
we lift our hearts before you and wait upon your word. We honor and adore you, our great and mighty Lord. Then hear, O gracious Savior, accept the love we bring, that we who know your favor may serve you as our